This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort. I'm your host, Ari Lamb. We have an amazing show coming up. You guys, seriously, Michael Ian Black is here, and we are going to get to all of that. But first, a bit about what we do here. America has long been influenced by the ideas and values of the Hebrew Bible. So each week, we take a look at a different portion of the Bible, identify a big idea or a big question that comes out of it, and then we talk about it with thinkers, writers, artists, faith leaders, and people from all sorts of backgrounds and traditions. So let's dive right into this week's portion, which is basically Genesis chapters 32 through 36. The story at the heart of this section is just completely riveting. Forget faith for just a moment. Like in the history of world literature, this one's a banger. Basically, the great biblical figure Jacob is wandering around the land of Canaan with his family. And they're a pretty small, pretty vulnerable group. So eventually Jacob settles down next to a small village And he asks the leaders of the village if he and his family can settle down there permanently. And they're like, sure, no problem. Come on in. You guys are all set. But then a few days later, Jacob's daughter, Dinah, is wandering about outside. And Shechem, one of those village leaders, sees, you know, this beautiful young woman. She's all alone. And the Bible doesn't mince words here. He sexually assaults her. He kidnaps her. And brings her back to the village, and no one in the village says a blessed word in protest. So this Shechem then approaches Jacob and basically says, give up your daughter. And look, he offers gifts, a dowry, whatever, but the demand is pretty clear. Now, remember, Jacob is defenseless and completely at the mercy of this village power broker. So he has no idea what to do, so he does nothing. Now, meanwhile... Jacob's sons, Dinah's brothers, hear about what happened and understandably they're outraged. So two of the brothers, Simon and Levi, storm into the village and they massacre every single man in the village and in the course of that rescue their sister. Now, if the story ended there, it would already have earned its reputation as a gripping tale. But the most psychologically interesting part of the story actually happens in the aftermath. So Jacob, the father, is furious He completely chews out Simon and Levi for what they did, and he accuses them of putting the whole family in danger. And the boys in turn fire back, well, you weren't doing anything. I mean, even though some guy raped our sister, your daughter. And while the narrative actually gives them the last word, it's clear that the tension is unresolved. And it remains unresolved, so that on his deathbed at the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob's literal last words to Simon and Levi are essentially... You guys acted like violent thugs. And for thousands of years, theologians, philosophers, even contemporary literary critics and academics study this story and cannot agree on who's right, Jacob or his sons. Now, here's the kicker. You know the term bar mitzvah, right? Basically, when a Jewish boy turns 13, that's when we consider him a man and so on. There's a party. So actually, in Jewish tradition, the source for this practice is, believe it or not, This story. The ancient rabbis noted that the Bible refers to Simon and Levi in this episode as men. And they calculated that when all this went down, they were 13. So it must be that when you're 13, that's when the Bible considers you an adult, a man. Now, think about that for a moment. 
Why on earth would Jewish tradition want to tie that transition into manhood to a narrative about bloody massacre, the moral interpretation of which no one can actually agree about? But if you think about it for a bit, I think you see that this totally ambiguous story is actually a perfect illustration of how complex it is to think about, well, being a man. So first of all, if the point of the story is that Simon and Levi are right, then maybe this story is about realizing that being a man means sometimes being called upon to do terrible and uncomfortable things because that's what it takes to keep your family safe. Or maybe if Jacob's right, then it's a story about how men, especially young men, are capable of terribly destructive, violent behavior, and we need to be on our guard against this. But here's a third possibility, and that's that both Jacob and Simon and Levi are wrong. Or maybe they're both right, but the real point is that the transition into manhood can be frightening. It can be a crisis. And what a young man needs in that moment is a father or a role model who can help navigate that transition and explain what becoming a man really, truly does and should mean who can share wisdom with you, born of experience. And the tragedy of Jacob and his sons is that they never have those conversations. Instead, everything's kept bottled up and that father-son relationship never recovers. And so ever since then, a bar mitzvah is an opportunity to repair that relationship, or at least to do it right in the first place. Because believe me, becoming a man is scary and being one's even harder. And without frank conversations about what it means to be the best man you can be, our sons will suffer for it, and so will we all. So to talk about all this, I brought on the author of the absolutely phenomenal new book, A Better Man, A Mostly Serious Letter to My Son, by actor, comedian, director, writer, the incomparable Michael Ian Black. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure, Ari. Thank you for having me. So your book is incredible. I I read the entire thing over a single Saturday. I couldn't put it down. And so maybe let's just start with the part that your own story plays in the book, because the part of your origin story that's really central to the whole thing is not having the kind of relationship you wanted with your dad. And meanwhile, your mom eventually comes out and leaves your dad for a woman who in the book at least you call Elaine. And part of the struggle you describe in the book actually is having to cope with how your mom and Elaine talk about men in general. So can you tell us a little bit about that dynamic? They were a new couple in what I'm sure they felt like was a new age. They got together in 1976, 77. And, you know, it was the tail end of a new moment in sexual liberation in the country. I shouldn't say it was a tail end of it. I mean, it was ongoing, but the first flush of that. They were feminists. They were active feminists in in the sense that they liked Lily Tomlin and subscribed to Ms. Magazine. I mean, that's really as active as they got, but they thought of themselves as as pretty active. That's like level one, you know? They were level one. But the way it expressed itself in our home was as a lot of anger towards men in general. And between them, they were raising three boys. And the message that they were giving at home, I felt like, was that men were, the phrase in vogue at the time was male chauvinist pigs, and that we were sort of condemned to be male chauvinist pigs just because of the way we were and and the culture that we lived in. And that was the last thing I wanted to be. It was confusing. I mean, it it was tough to grow up in that environment as a boy and feel like you were somehow condemned to be something 
kind of as you matured into adulthood. And so I feel like you do this really counterintuitive thing, which is in 2020, you're writing a book about being a man or like the importance of that father-son relationship, because this is structured as a letter to your son. So why is it important to have those conversations now specifically? Because the role of men is changing in the culture. The expectations on men are changing. Men's expectations of themselves are changing. They're confusing. I think for a lot of guys, it feels like what is acceptable behavior is not always clear. What we're supposed to do and not supposed to do is unclear. And I think a lot of guys are angry and resentful and frustrated because we don't know what the hell we're supposed to do. Sometimes men and boys rebel by becoming withdrawn and angry and, you know, sort of proudly non-PC. Some of us, you know, kind of overcompensate and kind of beat our breasts for the plight of being men. And ultimately what I think we want to do, what I think we want to do as guys is just understand, as white guys in particular, understand where other people are coming from, understand where women are coming from, at least try to understand and try to empathize and try to recognize where our own behavior falls short and try to be a little bit better, which is why the title of the book is A Better Man. Actually, speaking of being withdrawn, you actually played a really important role in my life growing up, and that's because... Because I'm your stepdad. (laughs) Right. Which I guess we probably should have said right at the outset of this, I'm already (laughs) stepdad. (laughs) Right, exactly. Breaking news... Well, actually, that joke is going to play even better when you see where I'm going. So I was raised in a deeply traditional, observant, Orthodox Jewish home like you. And I'm still that way. That's how I'm raising my kids. I'm actually a rabbi. But anyway, my parents, who I love, were were pretty suspicious of basically anything that was on TV in the 90s. So, like, we would watch old Abbott and Costello films, which I totally cherish to this day. But they didn't let me or my siblings watch anything on, like, actual TV. So what I used to do... Uh, like any good kid in the 90s and or any good kid ever, was I would stay up late until after my parents went to sleep and then I'd just watch whatever I could find. And in those days, the only good thing on that I could like consistently find at that time of night was VH1's I Love the 80s. And almost every talking head on there was either campy or excited or earnest, except you. You were like deadpan, sarcastic, really funny, really cool. And I thought you were a genius. It really shocked me when I start reading your book and you basically open your book by saying, if you want to see an example of something I don't think exemplifies, you know, manhood or manliness at its best, watch my work on I Love the 80s. (laughs) And so first I went through like the five stages of grief. So after being like totally crushed by that, the more I thought about it, the more it made sense to me. But can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. I don't think I quite use those words, but. (laughs) But it's more about being like withdrawn. Yeah. I mean, I had made a part of my career as this withdrawn, deadpan, sarcastic guy, and I was good at it and I could be funny doing it. But it was a good example of the kind of front that a lot of guys are instructed to put on where you're kind of invulnerable and impervious and you don't care really about anything. You keep a distance from everything and everybody. In my case, it was an ironic distance, but it could be an emotional distance. It can be a physical distance. There's a lot of guys who are like that. And I happened to be playing one on TV and was in a lot of ways one in my real life as well. And gradually, As my life evolved and I evolved, I realized that that wasn't suiting me well because it was preventing me from really 
being my full self. I can still do that. You know, like saying that I'm your stepdad, I feel like is a pretty good example of that kind of joke, just like a <laughs> deadpan, silly moment. But it's not all of who I am. And it was important for me to kind of grow past that. And I was great on those shows, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to say, like, I started following you from there. So I remember this one moment, actually, in your standup. You have this, like, joke about how Creed changed your life, right? And it's, like, basically this thing about how, like, you're just, like, you're worried about and, like, in some respects, you're actually being, like, like a bad husband, a bad dad. And then all of a sudden, you're, like, driving and you hear this, like, Hans wide open, you know, and it just, like, wrecks you. And you start, like, you know, really feeling something. And I kind of had this thought at the moment, which I thought was crazy, but now reading this book is probably correct, which is like, no, that actually was the real you as you were becoming the real you. Just a sense of saying like, no, I'm not too like ironic and detached and withdrawn to contemplate a cheesy song about being a good person. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. Like that, I, I tell that long story about being in my car when my wife was pregnant with our firstborn, the son that I ended up writing this book to. And that stupid Creed song right. came on <laughs> and I just lost it. And this was happening around that same time that I was doing those VH1 shows where it just cracked something in me. And that probably is much more of who I really was than the guy talking about Cabbage Patch Kids. So your book's about what it means to be a man or a better man, but it's also about community, which is one word you use over and over again in the book. Because you're reacting to a culture of like hyper individualism that you see as, I think rightly, as destructive. Now, if you think about how American society fits into this, so you could see America on the one hand as like the embodiment of individualism. It's like the cowboy loner. It's Shane. It's the man with no name. It's Davy Crockett. But at the same time, America's also deeply unusual, at least in a Western context, and how religious it is and, and has always been, which is something we normally associate with a really strong sense of community. Now, of course, not every community-minded person in America is religious, just like not every hyper-individualist in America is a cowboy. But still, in your book, you attack really compellingly, I think, what you call traditional masculinity, which is basically how you refer to this hyper-individualism on steroids. But in defending the idea of community, which you also do really compellingly, are you also maybe defending traditional masculinity, just like a different tradition, one that's more rooted in community, whether it's faith or otherwise? Yeah, entirely. I don't feel like I'm attacking traditional masculinity. I right. think I'm pointing at some aspects of traditional masculinity and saying these aren't serving us as well as they might. And one way for them to serve us better is to tap into community in a, in a, in a stronger way is to embrace the idea of community a little bit more than maybe we are. From a political point of view, because I think a lot of things get filtered that way, we tend to think in America of embracing community and the greater good as somehow embracing socialism or communism. And that to be American means to maximize individual liberty and individual expression. And I'm a big fan of individual liberty and individual expression. I think any comedian has to comedian, be. Right. <laughs> but I'm also a fan of balance and of ethics. And I do think there is such a thing as a common good. I think there's such a thing as a public good. I think there's some such a thing as a greater good. And unfortunately, with so much of masculinity, the way that a lot of guys are raised, we are conditioned and taught 
to pursue our own individual success at the expense of other people. Or we believe it has to be at the expense of other people because we view life as a zero-sum game. I'm just asking guys to look at that a little more critically and maybe find ways that we can discard some of that. And it's interesting because, as you say, there there is this like left tradition of community in the country, which is sort of call it socialism or communism or democratic socialism or what have you. But there's also this really strong right tradition of community. And in many respects, out of like detritus of this like horrible moment in our republic, like maybe there are those opportunities for us to reorient our thinking, not as like left policies or issues versus right policies or issues, but like really as just individuals that don't care about others versus community and a deep sense of belonging. And I actually think that's very powerful. Yeah. You know, it's it's probably too cute and too trite to talk about an American community because I don't know that that resonates with a lot of people anymore, even though we've right. seen evidence of it at times. Every larger community sees evidence of themselves in moments of crisis. This has been the first crisis, I'm talking about COVID now, that I can think of in American history where that hasn't been the case, where a global crisis, but we can you know, sort of drill down and look at it as a national crisis presents itself. And rather than unifying us, it somehow divided us further. We can look at the causes of that or what we think are the causes of that. And they're symptomatic, I think, of larger issues we're having as a country. But when we talk about left communities and right communities, so much of what seems to be community on the right, and I'm speaking as somebody from the left, and I'm trying to be generous, and I'm trying to understand it a little bit, as just, as, just as I'm talking about it out loud, so much of it seems to be about banding together for the common purpose of things that they're against. An idea that there's a kind of encroachment upon them that they have to battle against. And I don't know that that's as true with communities on the left, because I'm thinking now about like environmental communities or um, anti-war communities, or well, I guess anti-war is something by definition you're against. I don't know. I, it seems like there's a lot of examples out there of, you know, I, I think I'm talking out my <laughs> It's never stopped anybody. <laughs> So I guess to, to give you one final question, which I think that actually transitions well into. So in your book, you have this brilliant reading of Thomas the Tank Engine, of all things, which, you know, back in the day when I was a kid was Shining Time Station, I think, mm -hmm. um, which like randomly had George Carlin on it. Go figure. But where the highest compliment anyone gets paid is you're a very useful engine. And you entertain the possibility that you could build a philosophy of manhood on the idea of being useful to others. But you also critique this in part because I think you rightly worry that judging people simply by their usefulness is a recipe for really like massive emotional burnout. And it's also kind of dehumanizing. But that said, you also write really beautifully about the respect you have for military service, even as you suspect that we humans are like too war obsessed. And about whether you'd send your own kids off to war, you write, I'd hate myself for sending you and hate myself for keeping you home. Honestly, I actually think about this a ton. So I have two sisters who they happen to live in Israel and they're building their own families. And I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that their kids, unlike mine, are going to grow up taking for granted that they'll either serve in the military or else volunteer for national service, whether it's in an orphanage or somewhere else. And I actually worry that my kids will miss out by not having that ethic. So 
Not that I want America to reinstitute the draft. I think that'd be a terrible idea. But is there something American kids or many American kids are missing out on by not feeling that obligation to serve their country or their community? I think so. I think when I was just talking about my ass about different groups um, and the way we build community, sometimes, you know, fractured left and right. I do think, and I've come to feel this more as I've gotten older, that one way to bridge that divide is through national service. I don't think that means military service. In fact, I don't think we need a lot of people rushing to enlist in the military, but there's so much that could be done and should be done at home. I'm increasingly of the opinion that there should be some sort of national service requirement. I don't know what that looks like exactly. I don't know what the duration of that would be, but it seems like we are lacking in commonality now. We're becoming ever more segregated in a lot of ways. And a way to defeat that would be to just start mixing up teenagers, 18, 19, 20-year-olds from all parts of the country working towards some greater good for the sake of community. And I think there's a lot to be gained personally from that too. Speaking of, I actually had a friend who moved to America from Israel. He said that his son came home on the first day after elementary, after like fourth grade, I think it was, after a fire drill and said it was a really weird fire drill. And he said, why? And he said, well, because the bell rang and we all just went outside. And he's like, yeah, that's a fire drill. And he said, well, in my school back home, right back in Israel, he said, the way a fire drill works is when the fire drill happens, the bell rings, the eighth graders go and get the third graders and the seventh graders go and get the second graders. And that's what a fire drill is. Like it's baked into it that you care for somebody else over it. And I feel that's a, a huge part of what in our culture we're really deeply missing. Yeah, I think you're right. It's hard to determine like how to instill that, but it seems like we have to try. It seems like we're so focused on our own individual goals and successes that we're leaving a lot of people behind. And so much of the mentality of this country is that that's okay and it's not our problem. But from a purely like pragmatic point of view, it is your problem. It's everybody's problem. When social programs are failing, when people are living in poverty, when people are going hungry, when people are not being educated, you know, it's naive to think that that doesn't also affect you in some capacity, whether it's because, let's say, you own a company, you can't find skilled workers to come work with you, or your country's GDP is going down, or life expectancy is going down. I mean, from a purely pragmatic, purely selfish point of view, it seems like we should acknowledge that we're in this together and that we're all better off when we help each other. Amen to that. Guys, don't be dummies. Drop what you're doing now and go buy A Better Man wherever you get your books. And Michael Ian Black, thank you so much for joining me. All right. Thank you so much. And guys, come on, don't be dummies. Look, I don't care whether it's 2020, 1920, or 2020 BC. Talking and thinking really deeply about being a man is really important. But don't let American culture fool you. The best thing you could do as a man is not to be that tough-as-nails loner. Actually, being a man requires something much tougher than that. It requires showing the love and understanding and compassion that it takes to be part of a community. Because in the end, community 
and the joy it brings is the only thing that'll save us. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.